All right, my guest this week on the Dragzine Podcast is two-time U.S. national winner, top 10 and top fuel wins of all time, all-around crowd favorite, Corey McLenathan. What's going on, Corey? Not much, Brian. Just uh, kind of hanging out, waiting to see what the season's going to bring us here, and not really sure what I'm going to do yet. It's, it's been a crazy 2020, and now it's, it's kind of 2021 starting off a little bit the same way. I think everybody has the same mindset of where it's just like you're waiting. It's just like you're like, all right, is what's going to happen? You're just kind of like literally just trying to wait it out and see. Yeah, and it's going to be that way for another six, seven months, I believe. It's just, you know, kind of looking down the road and talking to track owners and what's going on. And I, I truly believe that the Gainesville, starting at Gainesville this year is probably – the smartest thing they could do at this point. Um, it's too bad Atlanta got moved right after that. But, you know, then all of a sudden you're going to start seeing some West Coast races happen. And uh, I'm still not sure what's going to happen with those. Yeah, that's that's the thing talking with, you know, when I did get out to events last year, talking to track owners and promoters, it's literally in like in the state of Ohio where I live, even for instance, it was county by county. Some tracks, you know, National Trail Raceway was all the races you want. You just had to limit spectators. Other places, they wouldn't let anybody in. It was just, it was so bizarre. Yeah, it, and it's been that way here. There's a couple little tracks, eight-mile tracks, that they ran a couple races, but then all of a sudden they got slammed, shut down, and nothing in California was being run hardly. We uh, we shot our horsepower war show and we were out at Barona and they were under the very strict, you know, they're on the Indian reservation. So that's a whole different set of rules. And they had tribal representatives there like tallying the amount of people they saw that weren't wearing a face mask, even when not properly. So it's it was totally off the chain. But I think you hit the nail on the head that we're going to see things like it might be kind of tight right now, but I think we'll see them loosen up as the year slowly progresses. Hopefully, hopefully. I agree. You know, I, I'm, all, I'm still waiting for the other shoe to drop in aliens to show up. That's where I push my money at. That's, that's my hard bet, the, the aliens. You know, I tell my kid, I tell everybody I know that I never thought we'd have to live through something like this. And it's just after it freaked me out for a little while, but now it's like, you know what? Use common sense double mask if you have to, go do your thing, take care of what you have to. I have an 80-year-old mother, and I just got back from her house this morning being being the pool boy, so I was there doing work. But, you know, it's it's tough to stay in, you know, and not do anything when you're on lockdown type of deal. But it's getting better. We're, it's getting looser. We're able to get out and, and do some things. And as long as you're careful and use common sense, keep your hands clean, you know, so far, so good. I, I joke with people. I say, listen, I'm probably not going to need the vaccine for the simple fact that I've been around racing for so long that I have so many chemicals and solvents in my body that COVID would enter and go, this place is kind of run down. I don't want to live here. It'll <laughs> just walk right on out. <laughs> or it would kill it one or the other. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I've literally taken a blast of raw nitro into my mouth and tasted it before. And I'm convinced at that point, if I can survive that, I'm good. I'll live yeah. through it. Yeah, I mean, I've mixed thousands of drums of nitro and done the fuel my whole life and, you know, stand behind the car or in the car with the big yellow cloud. And you can't think that anything could live through that. <laughs> so. No, no. Yeah, especially for folks that watch and listen, don't understand. If you are underneath the tarp or an awning when a nitro car is warming up and you're not wearing a gas mask, you are in for a very bad day. Trust yeah. me. Like I thought I was going to be tough and I would just wear my ear protection. No dog. That, that, that was, that was rough. I, I ran to the front of the trailer. That, that was no fun. And, and it's bad, but I know a lot of people that like to be there too. So I can't wear a mask. I, I wear sunglasses and I got a, I got a rag, but every time it gets done, when I as soon as I can get everything clicked off, I am out of there. <laughs> so it smokes you. It smokes you in a hurry. So to kind of, it's funny. I was kind of looking through doing my research on you, and I didn't realize this that you started out racing Volkswagen VWs. 
like what's the story behind that because that's that's a whole culture in amongst itself because i was out at a streetcar uh super nationals and there were some wild turbocharged stick shifted nine second vw bugs out there that are those things are crazy how did you get into that whole scene my father uh, had a partner. It was called uh, D&D VW uh, back in the day when I was starting uh, high school. And they had a performance, VW form, performance shop. And they built mostly sand, you know, cars and sand motors and, you know, everything that was that people couldn't get their hands on. So we started doing a lot of drag stuff uh, for people. And then I had the chance to go work at Autocraft where back then all the midget cars were running autocraft motors. Um, so after, after working there for a while, we decided, all right, let's cut the apron off the back of our 56 oval window and let's put this monster motor in it. And that was the start for me. Um, his dad did all, or I'm sorry, his partner did all the driving and uh, I just worked on it. And it was, it was awesome just to be part of it. And his friend got sick one day, his partner, and he said, well, you're 16 and, and we're going to let you go ahead and try this. Uh, went to uh, Buggin, where Buggins were always Orange County. Uh, went out first time, won the event. And then I was just, you know, just lucky. Um, and then went to the second event. I won that event, too. I said, well, I said, I know what I want to do. <laughs> what do you want to do? He goes, well, you're, you're now the mechanic and the driver. So. You know, it was it was a great start, great times. Um, used to take it up to Whittier Boulevard a lot, uh, mostly because V8s had no idea how fast, you know, these things are. I can imagine. <laughs> so, you know, and I know street racing is that, you know, that, that one thing that some people don't like to talk about. But, you know, back then I was racing for beer. I mean, it was you know, back behind Nabisco and, and all the places. I mean, I grew up in, you know, Orange County. So there was a lot of racing going on, a lot of hot rods going on. Um, but the nice thing was because we were in the VW industry, they had never seen, you know, a two liter motor with 48 Webers on it and, you know, trick transmissions and stuff like that. So it was, uh, it was a lot of fun, but I got my butt handed to me by a lot of V8s. So at the same time. So going off of, you know, that's a completely different universe. You know, uh, the VW crowd definitely runs within that crowd and they stay, they stay in that tribe. How did you end up, you know, in the world of nitro racing? Cause that's like, you know, that's a, that's a pretty sharp left turn. It really is. Um, my biggest thing was I always wanted to go faster. So uh, dad and I would sit down and say, okay, let's, let's put the car away. And we built a VW dragster actually. And it turned out some, some great times and had a lot of fun with that, but I wanted to do something different. And so did my father. So we actually got a Carmen Ghia, made a mold off of it, added 12 inches in it and the only way to really do that uh for the guy that was setting up the mold was to cut the top of the carmagia off turn it around so the windows were facing the the separate ways and then put that stretch in it so we had the very first um bw turboed uh 2600 and it had a keith longero two-speed in it and it was a full-on funny car Totally, you know, uh, certified the whole deal. That's wild. And, and it, <laughs> it was wild. wild. It really was. And that was my first thing I ever drove with a motor in front of me, you know, that type <laughs> of thing. Um, and it ran, gosh, it ran 890s all day long, just and not heard a thing. Uh, we went to the Sifka Funny Car Association. And they let us race with them one race. Um, it was just one of those cars that you could take and run almost anywhere in any class. But um, of course, I took the body off because bodies back then were heavy. Uh, put an altered looking uh, wing and stuff like that on it. And off the trailer um, went 867. And then turned around and ran 
like in the in the high 167 mile an hour that type of deal wow so i mean things were really different then but we realized quickly that we were spending as much money building these one-off vws as we could to go top alcohol dragster so at that point it was you know dad and me sat down and what do we do we race as a family and I happened to, to meet a guy named Ora Vasquez that was working for Blaine Johnson and Alan Johnson at the time. And he was ready to go off and do his own thing and uh, just uh, put it in his hands and built the car and everything else. And I never had worked on a V8 like that, especially a blown alcohol. So we put a Brad Anderson motor in it. And I'm telling you, had, had a blast for a couple of years in that. But I still had my sets, my eyes set on you know, I want to be in the fastest car you can be in. And that's when uh, we sat down with Daryl Gwynn and Jerry Gwynn, and we actually bought um, the Coors, uh, the extra gold car. And that was, you know, after the accident with Daryl and everything else, we um, we put it together. Daryl and I became really good friends and same with Jerry. And, you know, so they kind of pointed us in the right direction. But yeah, it was it was tough at first, but my age growing up in that world, I still got to race against Don Garlett, Shirley Modowney, uh, Kenny Bernstein when he came in a dragster, Perdome when he came in a dragster, Tom DeMongoose McEwen when he, when he came back for a little while in Jack Clark's car. Um, I mean, I, I was the last one to race Shirley and put her on the trailer. So it's being growing up in that age group really allowed me to race all my heroes really did you know that that's it's funny you went into that that was actually one of the uh the the questions i wanted to ask you about and we'll we'll just transition right into that was you know to me again it's the people on the wall we joked earlier you're on my my wall of fame and there's other people in that group that are on my wall of fame that you know my my age generation growing up watching guys like you race that's like to me that's so wild that that was like your job to race with those people looking back at that now you know with a little bit more age comes wisdom you know how do you reflect on that knowing that you were like literally in the mix of one of the one of the heydays of you know fuel drag racing definitely And, and you know what learning curve was was pretty big especially when it came to at the end of the drag strip when you get your helmet off and you actually have to talk on tv now, you know, drag racing was big and it was always on primetime channel back then. Um, and, and, you know, I had people like Kenny Bernstein to talk to. Ed the Ace McCullough and I were good friends. Um, it's it just one of those things where if they saw me not saying the right thing. They'd come by and give me a little, a little boost and say, look, you know, don't forget your crew and your crew chief and your parents and everything. And, and really kind of self self molded me to be kind of be what they were, but in, in a much, much younger stance. So, um, you know, winning my first race, obviously I went just crazy, you know, winning a top fuel race. It's all I really cared about, but that same year with Jimmy Proc, and I was the oldest person on the car at 27. And we were one round out from winning the championship. Joe Amato got it just because we didn't go to Canada. Um, it could have been one round anywhere, but it was one round because of that. So to finish right behind Joe and then Kenny Bernstein was behind me and Don Perdome and so on and so on. You, you could have just pinched me. I would have been good with it right there. It was just, a, we we're a bunch of kids out there doing it. Well, to me, that's, it's amazing too, because it's a different era of fuel racing when you didn't have the super teams. It was individual teams and like science, the, I call it the science of drag racing. You know, Dale Armstrong was a mad genius and a lot of that stuff really was starting to come into the fold. So to win during that time, was not easy and it you know you had that you know, money help but still i mean those things were brutal rock crushing machines still so you really had to have your act together yeah i mean i i'm not taking anything away from the cars nowadays but back then i think i was lucky enough to grow up in probably the toughest 
top fuel field that I had ever seen um, year after year for those few years. It was, like you said, it was the Mecca. It was all the big names, you know, um, even when Gary Selzy came in and started driving the Winston car. I mean, me and Gary, me and Gary battled, me and Scott Coletta battled. I mean, it was just, it was incredible. I mean, I was living the dream, getting paid for it. I mean, who gets to do that? Oh, it, it's a pinch yourself moment. And then, you know, I've talked to, you know, Herb McAllis about this too, that you don't realize you're living through a historical moment until it's past. Then you look back on it and it's like, wow, that was my life. And it's just, to me, it's so amazing to watch because you go through and you're starting to see a lot more of sharing of like the, like even like eighties to nineties to early two thousands, like video of old school, I call it old school, like the older racing. And to me, it's just amazing to watch all that, you know, just the burnouts back in the day, you guys didn't have limiters. You had to do the burnout yourself. Yeah. Yeah. And that, and that was, uh, that could be tough at the same time. You know, you basically put your foot on one of the roll cage bars and, and then you just kind of touch the gas with your toe a little bit and you find out how good you are when you have to do stuff like that. So, so, you know, things have changed a lot, but back then, you know, we did what it took, you know, and that's, and that's what it was. And it's just amazing to think back too. And it's got to be cool from your, your perspective to see that kind of like that, the technology shift, as I call it, from when computers were like bare bones basic to now that they get sample so much data that to get the performance levels, you know, like when Kenny went 300 to do it at that point, it's kind of, you look back on that now, people don't realize how big of a deal that really was. Oh, definitely. And, you know, and, and a lot of people, still really didn't trust the computers as much when they came in. They were still tuning by the way the parts looked and which we had done all our life, you know? So we never really had the real good computers that they do, you know, in the last, let's say 15 years to now where you can check every single thing, but there are still some old, old guys out there that I'd see, you know, go in the trailer and they still look, at every piston, every ring, every little thing, and they will make some adjustments based upon that, not always the computer. Let's pull the curtain back a little bit more. There, You said something. I know what it means, and some people not might, like I said, they don't understand. Tuning mm-hmm. by parts. That's something where literally you're looking at rings and bearings and pistons to see, you know, it's like, I don't even way to describe it. It's like you see like an, an ancient like ritual where they throw the chicken bones and the chicken bones will tell them what's happening. <laughs> That's what you did. You, you threw the parts down and you said, what does this tell me? You know, what were you looking for when you were looking at a main bearing and stuff like that? What, what were guys tuning off of? What were they looking for? If you were, if you were able to make a full pass on eight cylinders, the first thing we do is come back, pull the, you know, pull the heads off, pull the rods and pistons out, put them on a rack, get them inside with the spark plugs and because we could read so much of how much heat the spark plug saw or if it was you know gone basically <laughs> it had a little bit too much nitro um then you look at the pistons if, see if the rings stick see what they look like you know are they all if they're all nice and loose well you're in a pretty good pretty good area but if you found some that were sticky and the piston looked like it was getting eat on a little bit well then we we'd give that one some more fuel not too much though because if you gave it too much it started picking on the other cylinders so you know we fine-tuned it and kept our own log books i mean log books i'm talking this you know this big and uh just because we couldn't keep it on data but it definitely uh it that was a hard transition for me because i was used to looking at parts all the time God, that's fascinating. That is so wild that, you know, you, I, I guess I knew that was there, but you don't, it, it's weird to hear someone actually talk about what you went through. Cause I talked with the top alcohol team recently that ran one of the injected nitro cars and they talked that they always pull the caps and they look at the bearings to kind of tell them what's going on. And they replace certain bearings more than others because of the beating they take. And I guess I never really thought about like how you could really read like a bearing or something like that. And if it's sticky or, you know, you, you just, you know what it's supposed to look like and what it's not supposed to look like. Right. And, and we always would look at the, the farther, the rear bearings 
because they take most of the beating because the clutch is hanging on on the back of that. So that's added weight, you know, and then we went to little rub blocks that we'd put inside in the flywheel. So it hit those instead of like flexing everything really bad. And that would also, you know, let the crank live longer. But, you know, there's plenty of times where we come back, pull a cap off, there'd be a little little black spot on there. And we just go in with some emery cloth and, and boom, you know, boom, 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 look at the crank, maybe hit it a little bit and runner. It's good. Let's go. That's what you had to do back then, especially, you know, it's, it's weird to see when you go to a race now and teams unloading multiple short blocks to me, that's like, you know, I'm not going to say it's lazy, but it's like, wow, you know that they have their operation down to a science when they don't even bother, like just throw another short block in. Right. Well, you know, we'll, we'll fix that later. Let's just do this now so we can concentrate on the other things. And that's, I guess that's the, the beauty of the brutality and the, the nature of fuel racing is that you have to have that balance to be able to concentrate on what you need to do to go fast. Right, right. And even when mom, dad, and myself, it kind of a family-owned operation, the Mac Tech car, we only had four motors, you know. So, I mean, we're, we're trying to beat up on these guys that have, you know, like you said, eight short blocks and, and more, you know, more upstairs. And, I mean, there was times where we had to go over to Coletta's and, you know, we were all good friends or Dick LaHaye and, you know, hey, we need to borrow a motor for the final or – I don't have time to restrict this blower. Can you do it for me? It, it's, a, it's a very small world out there and people do a lot to help everybody else. And, you know, the, it might've been one, you know, each one against the other. And it's still that way when once we put a helmet on, it, it's game over. It is what it is. Everybody's friends till the threes bulbs lit. That's exactly. what I always tell people. That's, <laughs> you know, a racer will, they will be your best friend. Until that last bulb slip, then it's you know what they'll 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 literally try to scalp their own grandma to win the race. That's just how it goes. No doubt, and it doesn't matter if it's. I mean, there's a lot more women in the sport now and everything else, and it, it didn't matter. I mean, once you put on that helmet, put down that visor, it's gets go time. And that's what I think one of the cool things about drag racing is that it is truly an even playing field across the board age gender even disability because you got guys out there with hand controls that are whipping up on people does not matter it's about that the ability you have to drive and the ability to work on your machine that's the equalizer yes sir definitely now another thing i saw another older picture with a caption that i thought was interesting you know looking back you had some of the greatest minds in nitro racing around you at different points, you had Jimmy Proc, Mike Neff, Mike Green, and Dickie Venables all around you at some point. What's it like now seeing like that tree and how it's grown out for you? You know, that the, the, they say in the NFL, the coaching tree, that that's the Corey Mack tree. That, that's guys that were with you and now have gone out to do their own deal. What's, what's that like? You know, I love that because it, that was in 97, I think is when that whole, that whole bunch was all together. And nowadays, you know, you look back and like you said, every one of them are either driving or driving and tuning a car or tuning multiple cars. And, you know, especially Jimmy Proc and I, we learned together. I learned when I needed to lift and, and he learned by, you know, tuning our car and he just, we started out a little rough, but as we got going, just got better and better and better. And I learned to be a better driver with Jimmy. And and the same goes for the McDonald's days with Joe Gibbs. I mean, Larry Miner was the first one to hire me. I drove for him for a year and then Joe obtained everything and went that way. And we had, I mean, we had a rock star team. I mean, and to this day, I wish we'd, I wish I would have won a championship with those guys, but there were so many good teams out there that it, it, it's, it was just so competition level was just above all. But yes, to see all those guys go and do their own thing, and I'm still friends with them all. And uh, Mike Green and I, you know, stay, stay really close. And, you know, it's, it, it's really good to see all those guys go out and, and do what they wanted to do. 
if I had an assistant or, you know, the time I would have had to have gone through and tally up all of the national event wins and championships amongst all of the, like right there, how many Wallies will we stack up with that whole crew and you right there? That that's a good amount of, that's a good amount of wins. That's, that's scary. Yeah. And I can't even tell you exactly how many that is. I mean, I have 34, 34 top field wins and, you know, they started with Jimmy Brock and then went on from there. But I do know a, a big stack of them was, you know, good for being with Joe Gibbs, Lee Beard, Mike Green, you know, Zippy and, and Dickie Venables and everybody else, Jason McCullough. I mean, all these guys are just, they're rock stars now. So I, I love to see that happen. But you're right. There was a, there was a lot of trophies won then. And uh, then it kind of, gradually got a little bit you know calmer and slower as we went but um i i for one same way as i would tell anybody else um didn't have a lot of respect for the race cars until you crash one and that's when you find out you know it's time to respect this thing it's a monster and you could hurt somebody else you know let's We'll transition off of that question too. You know, you went for one of the wildest rides ever caught on film in top fuel racing at Bristol in 2006. Like you went from being a driver to a pilot and that's never, that's, that's not how you want things to end from a driver, from the driver's seat. What's it like going through something like that? Like inside the car, I'm imagining it happens so quick. You don't realize what's happening until you're where you're not supposed to be. Right. I mean, for me, that pole vaulting look, I mean, looking down and seeing the front, you know, hit making all the sparks and obviously, you know, the, the chassis broke by then, but being up there, it's like, this is, this is going to hurt, you know, one of those, uh, but being in kind of an old sand car, dirt race type of thing. Um, I just grab my, grab my belts, let go of everything else and put my head down and you know, I'm, I'm not a big guy, but I definitely was trying to get as small as I could, but it, it was crazy, you know, running for the, t- the hit in the back was, was a big slam. The parachutes coming out definitely helped tear the car apart. So I could, you know, be a little bit safer and not have the motor right there with me. Um, but yeah, that was, that was a, a pretty crazy little deal. And I uh, got a, a, my first ride in a helicopter, not the way I was look, thinking yeah. I was going yeah. to. Um, I, got, I remember getting to the hospital and them getting the shears out. And I thought, you can't cut this fire suit. I, I still have to race. You know? And they're looking at me like, um, I'm not sure that's going to be going on. So I'd, I argued with them. They let me take it off, got me back on there. I'm in one of those moods of, Okay, if I'm not, if nothing's broke, what do I got to do to get out of here? And uh, laying there and all of a sudden I hear this scream and this guy is going, he's my brother. Where is he? And he's, I'm thinking, I know that voice. And, and it was, it was crazy because all of a sudden the doors bust open and here comes Gary Selzy. And he's, while he rocks right up to the bed, looks at me and he goes, I thought you were dead. I thought you were dead. I mean, I, I can't believe it. That is, are you okay? And I mean, I, at that, by that time I was, you know, getting IVs and making sure everything is good. He was just blown away. So, um, you know, him and I have a very good relationship. I've seen some of his wrecks as well. And, you know, thank God for all the safety equipment we wear. It's just unbelievable what we can go through. Oh, it's crazy when you look at some of these crashes, like the one Tony Schumacher had, it was a Memphis and, you know, Leah's crash and Larry's crash, where from a media standpoint, like we typically can tell when it's bad. Like when you've been around the game long enough, you could look at a crash and be like, oh, that probably wasn't too that bad. But like when, when certain things happen, you're like, oh, that's, that's not good. Right. So from a driver's standpoint, you know, in a racer standpoint, does that still like that sense of dread hit you when you see that stuff happen now to other people? Definitely. You know, when I, when I see one come apart and come to a dead stop very quickly, that is, is one big red flag for me. Um, the sudden stops are the ones that really, you know, get your, get the attention of your body and extremities, you know, everything around it. Um, 
let's go back. Let's look at Leah's car. The front end came off last year. Um, we definitely have over the years experimented with different chassis and, you know, where we put the driver and, and, you know, how you build the front half, that type of stuff and done really well with them. Um, but on, on this case, there was nothing that was showing, you know, any stress on that chassis. And I was driving her backup car and we had 25 to almost 25 to 30 runs on that car last year. And it just, it kind of took us all by surprise, but because of what Don Schumacher has done and, you know, putting the capsules in and, and really, I can, I can say this for sure, going back and running four, four races last year with, with the whole co capsule and cockpit, you feel like you're Superman in that thing. I mean, it is, and, and should be, I think in, in one day we'll see them on every single top fuel car. Um, it saved some people's lives and, and it did make it easier on Leah as well. And, you know, Leah's in, a, you know, in really good shape as well. That's another thing that I'm very aware of when I see an accident, it's that guy's not in good shape, you know, so it's, this is going to be tough. Um, I was always in good shape during my wrecks and I was lucky that way. If I got in a wreck like you saw in, in Bristol today, at being 58 years old, I would have been hurt for sure. Oh, I could imagine just the, the G-forces and, you know, I, I've crewed on cars and I've seen the G-forces from, you know, even a wall tap at 160 miles an hour, the lateral force that it put on the driver. And it's like, how are you not sore after that? It's because safe car, belts were tight, Hans device. It's the sit like safety gear saves your life. That's the, I am my car right now. My street car is going to have to get an 850 cert cage put in it. I am taking it to one of the best chassis shops in the area. I am getting, I'm asking race clip how to put the belts in, right? Not just for my sake, my friend's going to drive the car too, but it, it's a matter of you you are your own executive director of your own personal safety detail. You have to take care of yourself and the discussion. Definitely. And I, that's one thing I do, no matter whose car I drive, I take the belts out, take the seat out, look at everything. And then I put the belts in the way I think they should be. Um, I'm a firm believer of the seven point harness. Definitely. Um, it cradles you if, if something bad goes on and, and, and probably saves your spine quite a bit. Um, during the Bristol race, we were still running the um, the G boxes, which were mounted on top of the of the head of the rail over your head, and it took it. The computer took it and said it was 122 um, G impact backwards into the wall. Um, but now you got to remember, we have a big thick piece of titanium that goes from here all the way down to your butt, basically. And we took that car apart the next day when I got back there, saw that piece, that titanium was, was bent like butter. It absorbed all the energy. And to be honest, I wasn't sore the next day. I uh, got back in the car on Sunday, drove the car first round, got beat. Uh, went to some friends of mine's house and uh, called my doctor and told him because by then the bruises were starting to show up. Oh, yeah. From belts and everything else. And and uh, I was out of commission for a good week, basically. And uh, then it was back, you know, back at it. You know, you got the race for let, let's just talk about the people you got the race for. Larry Miner, Joe Gibbs, Don Schumacher during your career. What was it like to drive for those organizations? I mean, that's like, again, if you go through the pantheon of motorsports, those are, that's a big deal. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, Larry Miner, I, I was only with him for a year, but he was the best owner. I mean, he really kind of let me do my own thing. Um, separated me and Beard when we'd be getting into it because 
you know, if I didn't drive the way Lee Beard wanted me to, we'd, we'd have it out. And, you know, Larry was really good about, hey, you guys spread out. So I enjoyed racing with Larry and I still talk to Larry all the time. I drive his sand car that he has. It's got a Brad Anderson motor in it. So it's, it's, it's quite the crazy little ride, but um, great people. Then going on to Joe Gibbs. Now that was, that was something I was, I was a little scared of actually. I mean, you're talking about a coach that's been dealing with, you know, 280 pound linemen and, and big guys and, you know, big egos. And, you know, these guys are tough as nails and he's got to be the coach. So I, I didn't know what to expect with, with, with Joe. And when he came in, soft-spoken, just unbelievable, great Christian man, um, great speaker. So I think I learned more about being a, a good person and, and, and well thought out what the things I was going to say after getting out of a race car, unless I was mad, then when I'm mad, nobody can tell me what to say. <laughs> it just is what it is. But at the same time, I learned a lot from Joe and uh, really enjoyed working for him. Uh, work, enjoyed working for the Carrier Boys as well. Uh, that I was- forgot about them, yeah. Yeah, that's when we got the Fram deal. Um, it took us three years to get the Fram deal done because they just didn't have the money that it would really take to go run. And they were with uh, Rhonda Hartman. And I just kept telling them, I said, you guys, we can't run on the money you're offering. You know, you're better stay, better off at that time staying with a girl like Rhonda Hartman and have John bring out, you know, a second car every now and then. Um, but they made it very clear. We're, we're, we don't want we want to move on to a car that's not only going to qualify, but start winning races. And so it took us three years to put that deal together. Um, so that, that definitely was my biggest heyday as far as bringing in a, a couple million dollar sponsor. I mean, that was, that was a great day in my life. It really was. Um, but at the same time, I mean, I drove for Daryl and Jerry Gwen for a year had a blast the greatest people to, to drive for um same thing with kind of the same thing with joe joe never told me what to do joe just told me you know go out and get him and you know we were at uh we were at indy one time and mike dunn and i did not get along when it comes when it comes to being on the starting line and we held each other out basically until there was hardly any fuel in the car. And he won that round. I was waiting for him in his pit when he came back with all his guys. And I had none of my guys with me. And, you know, Mike's a pretty tall guy. So I'm, I'm giving him the bit you know, like this. And, and I'm thinking, you know, size doesn't matter to me. It's, you know, what happened shouldn't have happened. And uh, next thing I know, I see all his guys around me. And then all of a sudden my guys start coming over and I look over and you can see Joe across the street, leaning on a, on a trailer, watching this whole thing go on. So at that point I walked straight over to him after it was done. We, we finally got it peaceful. I walked over and I thought, I am so fired. <laughs> you know. And he looked at me and said, are you, are you done? Do you feel better? And I said, yes, sir. And he goes, go back to work. Just like that. <laughs> That, was, that it. was it, you know, and I was just, I was just really happy working for a guy like Joe and, and the people that were behind him and, you know, got to, you know, hang out with Bobby Labonte and then met his, his brother, Terry, those two guys, they are, they are some of the best people in the world. Uh, then they brought Tony in and uh, finally I found, they brought smoke in and I was like, okay, does anybody have anything to say? We're all in one general area. And I said, yeah, I just want to thank Smoke for coming over here because now he'll be getting in trouble and I won't be. <laughs> so, so that's how me and Tony started off kind of thing. Because, you know, I admit it, I was a helmet thrower and uh, Tony had a couple, you know, a couple similar things like that. Just, and, just a few. Yeah, and he, and he doesn't take any any crap from anybody. And I had that same mentality. So, so me and Tony hit it off really quick, really good, actually. So, you know, 
That's it was awesome. a lot of fun. Yeah, I, I could only imagine. That's that's one of those deals where Joe is probably like, I'm just going to keep these guys separate as much as possible. Just l- let's not combine the combustibles. Correct. Correct. Uh, you know, but it was a lot of fun. You mentioned your sponsors there. And of course, we run on sponsors here as well. I got to thank our sponsor of this episode, Performance Distributors, the company that allows you to feel the difference, not just ignite a spark. What does that mean exactly? Well, their ignition systems are designed and manufactured under the most stringent of guidelines. In fact, the owner, Steve Davis, told us their systems are designed as if they're running them in their cars, because they are. One of the products you may already know them for is their line of DUI distributors. The first and one of the best HEI distributors on the market. Their machine calibrated timing curves provide instant throttle response and eliminate engine damaging detonation. For those of you with late model vehicles, their sultans of spark ignition coils are based on the DUI technology. So they too can accommodate a wider plug gap when firing more voltage. So check out performancedistributors.com for all of your ignition needs. Try to hit it like all those years growing up watching Force and everybody else. I learned that you got to hit those sponsors. You got to hit them right. Right. And you don't get a second chance most of the time anyway. <laughs> no, no, not at all. It's it's something you learn and it's 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 a uh, an acquired thing that you got to figure out and you got to do well. And another thing I wanted to kind of touch on, you mentioned this earlier that you've never had that opportunity to win the championship however you have done something that not a lot of people have done you're a two-time winner in top field at the u.s nationals what does that mean to you to have be in that club of a multi-time u.s nationals winner you know what it, it's it rocks i mean there's nothing else to say about it you know winning indy two times um you know they say if you can't win the championship indy's the next thing they want to know you know so, so Indy's, Indy's big, you know, 96 win in Indy. That was a tough one because we lost Blaine Johnson uh, and Elmer Trett that weekend also. Um, so, you know, getting into that, it was kind of a motivation thing. You know, after you see a horrific thing like that happen, and I happened to be alongside Blaine when it happened during qualifying. So I was pretty down the dumps and, you know, you know, he just like, I need to find a way to get back up on top here. And I was living in Indy. I had a few helmets painted different colors. And I had one helmet that I had done with McDonald's logo, but it was purple and with checkerboards on it. And it was denied basically. So it was just sitting in a closet somewhere. And at that point I needed something to get me revved up and back on back on task and Lee Beard and I sat down we had a good talk uh, I went right back that night and I took that helmet out I ran at the rest of qualifying and won the race with that helmet um, and back then you know all the all the killer helmets and indie helmets went to Union Jacks and got displayed there um, so Ron Burton came to me said he'd do a nice you know abstract painting of me in the car and uh, if I would give him that helmet to put in Union Jacks and I, I jumped at the chance because, you know, the Ron Burton stuff is just unbelievable. Um, so here we are years and years and years later. And I've been wondering where that helmet ended up, you know, and that, that's a, that was a one time thing. I never wore it again. So um, it meant a lot to me. And uh, so when I got to go run for DSR this last year, I went to dinner with uh, Leah Pruitt and, and Smoke. And nobody knew at the time, like they were kind of a thing. So I was, you know, really trying to be quiet about it. But at the same time, you know, getting to know Leah as a teammate and then having known Tony for so long, we went to dinner that night in Indy and, and it really enjoyed ourselves. And, you know, that helmet came up and Tony said he had seen it. So um, as the night went, we kind of went on different things and had a blast and, and the very next weekend, we were racing again in Indy, and Tony has one of his gals walk up and just throws his helmet at me, and it's in a bag, and I'm like, what's this? I opened that thing up, Brian, and it was, I, I didn't know what to say. 
I mean, my I, my jaw dropped to the ground. I looked up. I'm like, well, I, I, I don't even know what to say. This is something I never thought I'd see again. So I had the trophy, the pictures, the helmet. It's all a, a one collection type of deal. And thank you to Tony Stewart for just, I mean, he just, he didn't even want anything. He just said, here it is. You talking about it. I found it. It's yours. Just like that. And, and that's, that is huge. And, and, you know, I owe Tony a lot for that. I really do. That's awesome on so many levels because it shows you the kind of person Tony is, which he's, again, when you get to see him at different levels, you understand he's a good dude, but he's just, he, he's a wild man. He honestly really is a wild man. And you want to make sure you're on the right side of the wild man. Correct. And, from a driver's standpoint, too, your helmet's a big deal, especially in an open cockpit car. That, that's your personality. That's like your your game face. So getting that back, that that's a big deal. It, it really was. And you're right about that. With open cockpit cars, it's uh, it's all about what you have on, on your helmet to tell the story. It really is. So um, it's just one of those things, you know. And working with Leah uh, last year was just off the charts, really good, very devoted. Um, she listens to everything I had to say. Um, she's a great little driver and she's a great gal. She is very smart in her own right about you know trying to find sponsors in a way that I've never gone to do that because you know things have changed in the last you know 15, 20 years. Uh, but it was a blast to work with her and spend time with Tony and just uh, it kind of brought us all closer. So we get on the phone and, you know, chat it up every now and then. But, you know, they're they're both very busy. So um, I, I kind of I took that as a, you know, a really good thing, made it made solid friendships with them. Um, Leah is a great driver. She uh, she's going to be one of the one of the best. I can tell you that much for sure. Um, when she had something she had a question on, no doubt she came right to me and I'll tell her my experiences and make sure you're on the starting line with her every single time. So she has that in her head, you know, what, what you're thinking and the conversation you had. And she really stepped up. She stepped her game up last year in a big way, driving and on the starting line and uh, really proud of her for it. Shifting gears a little bit here. Let's talk about the top fuel first funny car showdown, because that's like literally, you know, growing up as a kid playing with matchbox cars, that was something I did. And then you get to see it in real life and then you win it. Like, what's that? What was that whole experience like? You know, because I'm sure the NHRA came to you guys and pitched this and y'all went like, you want to do what? And, and, and that was the crazy thing because we were doing it off of national ET records for funny car and top fuel. So that's how they staggered us on the starting line. And a lot of guys were red lighting. I mean, think about it. 10,000 horsepower sitting next to you, their light's gonna come down before yours. So, you, but you've gotta be ready, you know, and you get too ready and you're gonna jump and, and red light. But I can't tell you how much fun it was to race John Force you know, Whit Baysmore, Ron Caps. I mean, these are guys that I've always wanted to race in funny car, period, you know. And so to do that was awesome. And it just, I, my, my background has always been bracket racing. So I always had to wait, you know, my, my turn to go. So it didn't bother me as much. And uh, there, was, there was some trickery to it a little bit, but John winning the first one, and then me getting to win that second one, man, I came around that top end. I mean, it was just barking the tires, throwing the car sideways. I was just beyond myself. But after that, I found out that John dropped his trophy trying to move it during Christmas or something and broke it. So that means there's one trophy left in all of drag racing for that race. This is the glass piece that John dropped. Oh, wow. And so, th so this stays right by my desk along with the, the Noble Championship. And that sets on top of it. Oh, wow. That's awesome. So it's a, 
it's one of those races where Bristol's been really good to me and really bad to me. Yeah. At the same time. <laughs> but, Thunder um, Valley giveth, Thunder Valley taketh. Taketh away, you bet, you bet. And that, you know, that was home, that was home for the Carrier Boys. So um, during the wreck, that was, that put out a lot, you know, it was a big deal. But going back to the funny car and, and top fuel, I wish they'd do it again. I loved it, loved it, loved it. Do you think that's something, you know, that drag racing needs more of to go back to some of these big one-off spectacle deals? Like, you know, they're putting dirt in the Bristol to do some circle track racing. I'm of the mindset, I think drag racing needs to be slightly less corporate at times and really it needs to jump in the front of the parade of how big of a spectacle it is because people love, have always loved spectacles. But in today's day and age of short attention spans, you got to do some crazy stuff to get people's attention. You do. And, and, you know, a guy like, you know, Marcus coming in from Camping World and, you know, taking over the series, you know, even in 2020, that's a gentleman that I, that I want to meet because I guarantee that guy right there is going to be the one to throw out something new and, and give everybody something to shoot for. But, yeah, we need to go back a little bit and not be so polished and show them that we we're, we're still just racers, you know? Um, yes. Our sponsors want to hear their name and they don't want, you know, the fist fights that became a big deal. And I mean, I look back in the day and I'm thinking, man, I raced with Ed McCullough, Bernstein, all. I mean, there was, a, if there wasn't at least one fist fight during the weekend, it wasn't a good weekend. You know, and and now it's all about, oh, don't touch him and don't do this. And don't. that part, I don't agree on at all. Clearly, I'm there's a lot of people that have never been to a dirt track race. And the, the thing about dirt track racing is the fights don't make it on TV because they don't have like a top end reporter. They just go back to the pit. They unload their stuff. They thump each other. You good. You good. And they go back out and race again. Exactly. And, and I found the same with the off-road stuff. I did a. Uh, drove a pro light for a few years and mostly in the regional did a couple of the national events. Uh, but you could have those kind of situations there too. But once again, there's not a camera right there watching you. No, no, so they don't, they don't get it. So, but NHRA has, has got some good top end stuff, you know, me throwing fits and I'm, I'm not the only one, but I'm calling myself out, you know, and oh. it's just part of it. Yeah. And I, I think it, you know, you go back to the most recent one with Steve Torrance and Cameron Foray, where there, there's, you know, a lot of hand wringing over that. But if you look back at what happened and when they went past the grandstands, the reaction they got and any time that they race now, there's something there that has sucked people in. Now, am I for guys beating on each other? No. But don't tighten the ropes down to the point where you're pulling some of the emotion out, you know. People want to take things to the wrong extremes these days. But I really think that, you know, drag racing at all levels is a passionate, wild, sensory overload sport. And we need to make people understand that. Yeah. Yeah. And that's how it was before. I mean, even the top end, like. I knew when or when not to take my helmet off. If I had a problem with somebody, I'd just leave my helmet on because I'm pretty much smaller than anybody else out there. And me and Perdome used to go at it pretty hard just because he liked the stage last. And so did I. So we'd have some burn downs on the starting line. Um, and I'd be out of my car and into his cockpit before he even unbuckled his belts. I mean, and, and it just one, two, three, here we go. And then he'd get out and that turned into to this and we're helmet to helmet, you know, and then they're talking about it. They, people thrive off that type, type of stuff. And it's natural for me because if, if I'm mad, no one's going to stop me. Just, just give me that 10 minutes of being that way. And then I'm back to my normal self. You know, it's just, just happens. And again, I, I just, I really think that there needs to be more spectacles back in drag racing again. And, you know, there was talk of going to like select quarter mile events and, you know, you just, you can't do that to teams because of the cost, the cost to go from quarter to thousand foot trim and oh. everything else is, 
that unfortunately puts that out of contention, unfortunately, unless they want to do something that's completely like you just put up a sign-up sheet that says, hey, anybody that's crazy enough and has the money that wants to do this, come on over. And I think a lot of people don't realize that quarter-mile nitro racing is not what a lot of the drivers are about these days. No, no. And and believe me, this is coming from a hardcore quarter-mile guy. And that's, that's one thing. And, and a lot of damage occurs in that last, you know, in that last few hundred feet, let's put it that way. So not only does it help us there, it also gives us a little more braking time. But the thing that got me that made me right from a quarter mile guy to a thousand foot guy was losing Scott Coletta and some of the other people that we've lost because of issues like that. So I, I'm, I'm good with it. You know, I'd rather see my friends alive and, and not, you know, not going into the, to the pit just because you can only get one shootout. I mean, Pomona, for instance, it's one of the shortest shutdowns we have. And, you know, at 330 mile an hour with two shoots, you're still getting ready for that turn. It's a lot like, you know, I, I like to ask, we'll transition this. I always like to ask racers, what else would you want to race besides a fuel car? And there's two things that a lot of guys say that they would not touch a top fuel Harley and a pro mod because pro mods are crazy because they run the quarter mile, 250 mile an hour door car. Those are the two things. A lot of guys say I ain't touching, but what would you want to race? It would, it would definitely be a pro mod. I love them. Love them to death. Um, you couldn't strap me on a top fuel Harley on the back of the guy that's that's riding it you, it you i'm telling you wouldn't happen could not happen they are scary machines i am bound to determine i am going to get a top fuel raced harley racer on the show and i'm going to ask them what are you scared of because then that would ultimately tell me what i need to be afraid of more than anything yes sir definitely one of those guys says i don't want to do something that that is god's way of saying don't do that definitely yeah they're a breed of their own that's for sure um yeah it, it's totally different i have a, a 1966 uh box nova chevy 2 box nova in my garage and we're just getting ready to uh pull the little motor out of it and we're gonna go we're gonna go big with it and i'm gonna try to take it out run some no preps and stuff like that with it um just you know, I've been friends with Jeff Lutz for a long time, but after getting to meet, you know, a couple of the guys at SEMA and stuff like that, and this car's already tubbed, it, it already has a roll bar, it already has everything it needs in it. It's just, I kind of built it for a show car and then got carried away and thought, oh, I'm going to be that guy that retires and goes to shows. And I took it to two car shows, Brian, and literally wanted to leave two hours after getting there because I can't sit around all day, you know, and I'm not going to, you know, I, I saw a lot of good cars. I love going to them, but so now this car is going to become a track car. So you'd be surprised how many guys retire from the long chair brigade to come racing because they just, you get, you, once you live a certain life and then you go to a car show, it's like, this, it's either for you or it's not for you. There is absolutely no in between. Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting that, you know, at the same time, do you, do you follow much of the radio racing stuff at all? Yeah. You know, yeah. Th- this week is, you know, lights out one of the big races too. And it's always interesting that, that, that that's kind of what like a lot of my more experience has been around and like growing up around that scene as well. And it's a completely different deal where you'll get guys that are like super comp, super gas, super stock, stock racers that look at the radio racers like they've got a screw loose. Like, why the hell would you want to not have a wheelie bar and do that stuff? Because you can't because you want to go fast. Right. It's the challenge. It's challenging, like you said. And, you know, to be honest with you, I've seen a lot of those races and I could handpick about half of them are really badass drivers, really are. Um, just to be able to handle that on such a tiny tire with all that horsepower, unbelievable. Oh, it's, it's again, it's, it's when you're a drag racing nerd, 
you just look at something like that. You're like, oh, there's so much cool stuff going on here. When you look at the technology, how they, you know, you're taking 5,000 horsepower and stuffing it down to a little 315 radial. It's like when you know and you understand it, you're like, oh, wow, that that's wild. Yeah. Yeah. That's why I like the pro mods too. I mean, you're taking a short wheelbase car, you're putting a, you know, a big Brad Anderson motor in it with a big blower on it and it's making a ton of power and it's, it's probably not even meant to ever be in those cars, but they just watching them run. I mean, I go up to watch them run all the time. And to, to me, that looks like the funnest sport out there is just that one category. Being at the top end when a pro mod comes through and bangs the chute is a whole different experience because that thing's pushing a lot of air, especially a blower car, because a blower car sounds like it's trying to kill you no matter what, like a roots or a screw car. And when it comes to the top end screaming at 10,000 RPM, it gets your attention in a hurry. Definitely. Yeah. And they're, uh, you know how it is. They get one tire out of the groove and they're in trouble. I mean, it's, it's a balancing act. They, they get in trouble and then you get, there's two kinds of guys that are driving that car. I can save it and live to fight another day. I would be a live to fight another day kind of guy because one tire can turn into four tires out of the groove quicker than what you want to think about. Same, yeah, same. And I drive the fuel car the same way. If it gets, if it's getting squirrely, it's not worth it. Click it, take it back, get it fixed, and bring it out. Now, if it's Sunday, that's not going to happen. You, you'll you'll push it a little bit farther than you, you. Oh yeah. You start riding that line of if things go right, you're a great driver. You're a genius. Things go wrong. Well, I should have probably lifted. <laughs> and and to have to make that decision that quick, but you know. On Sundays, they take off all the stuff, you know, the shut off and, and all the stuff and just let the driver drive it, you know, except for a, a few people leave like pan pressures and stuff like that because we don't want to oil down the track and stop the show type of deal. But at the same time, when it's a fuel car and you know how to drive it, you will keep pedaling it if the guy next to you is not ahead of you. Here. You're looking like this, like, I don't, I don't see him. I don't yeah. hear him. Yeah, and you're trying to wrangle that thing, and it's wanting to go this way and go that way, and it, it, it is truly the most fun way to win is have two guys go out there and battle back, smoking the tires back and forth, and you get the wind light, you feel like you accomplished something. Look at some of the old stuff that Force did back in the day, and some of his pedal jobs where that car was, you know, going to either make it down the track or in the one case where you ended up on the lid sliding down, you know, he's trying to win a championship that year had to go number one. And there, there he goes, just cast, you know, spinning like a top on the top, you know, on the top of the car. And, and, you know, ask him, he's been doing this for a long time. He's, um, you know, he, he was a, just a truck driver and he turned himself into, you know, the icon of, of drag racing, basically. So you can't take that away from him, but he's had some crazy rides, let me tell you. Yeah, yeah. He's one of those people that um, I think he found a way to buy more lives at the nine lives line in, in the racing world. and just keeps going through stuff where it's like, oh, well, you know, it, it wasn't a week of watching racing unless John was upside down on fire with the dirty fire suit yelling at Steve Evans. That was, and that happened for a long time. <laughs> so, cause I was coming into it, you know, during the, during that deal. And it was like, man, this guy, he is, he's nuts. There, there's a cool video out there. If you watch it of like the old AHRA days, I forget what track that they were racing. at. It was like an eight car shootout. It was a summer funny car nationals or something like that. It might've been an English town. And like the track is, insanely dark to the point that would make a, an NHRA tech inspector cringe, you know, they're trying to get these cars down the track. There's a, you know, barely a single guardrail there and they're going 260 miles an hour. It's like that, that's like, you know, when they say, well, men, more men, that video right there, that is, that is it right there. No doubt. Definitely. I mean, they're, they're pretty tough on us now about when we can race and, and when we can't, but, 
you know, back then it was just all about, let's go do this. If you're going to run, I'm going to run. It's, it's the equivalent of when you see pictures of guys wearing old leather football helmets with no face masks. I it's know. Like, they're, they're tough. Yeah, definitely. Well, well, Corey, our time here is coming to an end, and I like to give people their opportunity to actually channel their inner John Force and thank all their sponsors and thank who they need to thank. So I will turn it over to you, and you can tell people where to find you at, what you got going on. Well, I, I'm actually kind of laying back this year a little bit, um, looking at some uh, pro buggies. So I might may go back to the dirt and have some fun there. Uh, but my mom is 80 years old, so I'm, I'm trying to take care of her and take care of myself. And unfortunately, some of the accidents that look so cool a long time ago, I definitely have got my attention these days. So I'm trying to trying to get myself fixed back up. And there's there's a lot going on with, you know, with COVID and everybody. So my biggest thing is I really want everybody to be safe understand what they're you know what they're doing and going through um two of my biggest sponsors i mean rev chem composites and uh, nordic boats you know those guys have been with me through thick and thin um they they asked me this year what are you going to do what are we going to do you know and and they're still involved uh rev chem will be on coletta's cars this year and i'm sure if i come up with something they're going to jump on there with me because I just don't feel, I don't feel right not racing. So uh, you may not see me in a top fuel car this year. I do have some things going. Uh, one would put, I would be putting somebody else in a car and another one would put me in a car for one year and then I'd be out again. So um, we'll see what happens. Uh, we'll see how the, how the season starts out. Uh, but for the fans, I just want to let them know how much they mean to me and how much, you know, there, I still get letters. I still get some really cool stuff on Facebook and everything else. And there's a lot of fans out there and I may not have been the easiest person to get along with all the time, but when you're at the racetrack, you're at work. So uh, they've, they've been very gracious and very good and coming on shows like yours. I mean, I'm, it's my privilege to be on here. And uh, I talked to Tony Stewart the other day, I said, look, I want to, I want to throw in that, that story, you know, good with that. He's, right on that's perfect so tony's getting his license and uh we'll see what happens here in the, in the next year see if he actually ends up in a top fuel car but he's been to the frank holly school and uh made some passes so i'm excited to see where where that's going to go but i'm going to sit back and and maybe take another position um i'm 58 years old i mean i still love stabbing the throttle in anything but there is a time where you need to step back and I think that's that's my time. Awesome. Well, thanks, Corey, for coming on. And of course, I've got to thank our sponsors, Performance Distributors, Pro Charger, and AFR Cylinder Heads for being a part of our show. Corey, it was awesome having you on. This is a you you are now checked off the wall. You know, maybe we can get you back on at some point. Maybe get you and Tony on. That'd be kind of wild. You know, I'm always up for that. That would be probably a that'd be a whole lot of show. That'd be a whole lot of show. Be a lot of fun show. The hour would go fast. Let me tell you. <laughs> I, you know, I, I tell people it's a minimum of an hour, and sometimes it can go over. Sometimes it can. It just depends on the person, what's going on. But that might be one of those ones where we just we pull those belts up to tight, boys, and we see where we end up. Exactly. <laughs> I'm totally in. So awesome. Thank, I, you, thank you for having me. I thank you so much it. for Corey for coming on, and uh, we'll see you here in the future. You got it. Take care. <laughs>